Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we have three experts with us on Brazil, politics, culture, society, and they are going to try and help us make sense of the election of Bolsonaro, what it means for the country and what it means for the world. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I'm going to let them introduce themselves so you know where they're coming from. I'm Nadia Guimarães. I'm from Sao Paulo, the University of Sao Paulo. I teach sociology and I do sociology of work. I'm Graham Daniel Willis. I'm a lecturer here in the Department of Politics at Cambridge. And I work on violence, organized crime, urbanization in Brazil, thinking a lot about the politics of neoliberalism and abandonment. I'm Pedro Mendes Loureiro, also a lecturer here at Polis, lecturer in Latin American studies. My work focuses on inequality, structural change and development in Latin America, but particularly Brazil. Perfect. We're going to try and sketch out the background both to this man and to his election, because it's, it, apart from anything else, it is a remarkable story. So his career was in the army before politics, and the role of the army in Brazilian politics is a crucial issue here. So do you just want to help us understand both his relationship to the army and then the army's relationship to the state? It's interesting because if we take Bolsonaro as a reference, he actually is not the, the perfect kind of military. Huh? It is not the perfect representative of the army. And besides, what is the army? Huh? There is heterogeneity, diversity, including ideological diversity inside it. And we can follow this in the different interventions along Brazilian history. Is it true that the army sees his election as its way back, in some sense, to power? I think there is a big section of the army that's happy to get back into politics that way, both in terms of elections. He brought about 20 deputies who were linked to the military police or to the army with him to the lower chamber of Congress. And also as ministers, he's appointed or plans to appoint several military officers. However, it's not entirely clear that the army wants the responsibility for solving a series of serious issues in Brazil, such as policing assuming the role it had during the military dictatorship. So it is probably a divided issue within the military, whether they want to get back in and in which way. Because an idea, you say there have obviously been this series of interventions, and one of the things that people outside Brazil know about Bolsonaro is that he is, in some sense, a fan or an advocate of the previous military dictatorship. Is that serious? I mean, it's so hard to know from the outside. I mean, he says outrageous things. So we, he's in that pattern of politicians who say outrageous things. Should we take them seriously? Is he serious about wanting to get back to a form of military rule? I think he is serious. He needed to represent a very conservative political position, a real right-wing position. I think this is interesting in Brazilian reality now. 
people that comes to the scene claiming that they are extreme right. And this is public. So in the past, it would be, you couldn't say that in that way? My point is that they didn't use to say that. You had right. You had right movements. You had middle class in the streets in the 60s. Conservative positions, morally conservative positions. But claiming being extremely right and getting votes from that position, this is new probably. Yeah, the military has had different forms of intervention in Brazil in different historical periods. And so from 64 to 85, there was, of course, a military dictatorship. And then the government opened up and decentralized, and a lot of the discussion and the the disfavor towards the military was very strong for very many, many years. And Bolsonaro was in the army in that period, so he wasn't in politics in that period. He He would have been very early stage in his career in the middle of the dictatorship. He only ever rose to a captain, I think, so he never actually got to the upper echelons of the military itself which is another very important dynamic in all of this, actually, that there is an asymmetry between people who are at the very top of the military and where he is within the hierarchy of the military. So how's that going to play out? I mean, do they think that he's somehow going to take their orders? Well, his vice is a general in the military, is a formal general. And so there is a lot of discussion about which tail is going to wag the dog. If it's the people who have de facto hierarchy within the military, or if it's him who has a larger political and public position, which somehow he has taken and borrowed as an idea of what the military represents, which is something very different. Because, of course, the Brazilian military has, under Lula and other press governments, has been intervening internationally in very different kinds of ways. There are peacekeepers in Haiti. They were, they were aligned in different kinds of ways with humanitarian projects. So it's not clear at all that the military needs to be what Bolsonaro is making it out to be, which is a kind of very narrowly defined idea of militarism and of intervention and and violence internally. And what's so striking, again, seen from the outside, is that we have an understanding of what a coup is, what a military takeover looks like, and it involves the army. And yet, in the Brazilian case, actually the decisive actors in recent Brazilian history have been the courts and the judiciary. And again, the language of coup is now being applied to that. So both Lula and then his successor, Dilma Rousseff, They have effectively not been the victims of an armed intervention in the state, but a judicial intervention. Do you think the language of coup is appropriate here to describe? Just just tell us a bit about what happened and then also how you would characterize it. The 2016 impeachment of Dilma was described by the PT and by the left in general as a parliamentary coup. And there's a big discussion of whether that's correct or not. So let's just get some facts straight. So Dilma was impeached by supposedly a crime of responsibility that amounted to essentially cooking government budgets, putting money from one side to the other to show that there was a smaller public deficit. And the process did follow the correct legal procedures. So it wasn't an outright mishandling of justice. It wasn't anti-constitutional in any way. However, there are two issues in that. One being that this cooking of government budgets was widely practiced by state governors, by previous presidents, and so on. So it's a very selective So it's it's the why-her question. Yeah, it's the why-her question. And also the fact that the impeachment had to be voted at both houses of Congress. And there was clearly, clearly a political motivation to do that. It was 
unashamedly political people saying that they were voting to make the economy better, saying that they were voting to preserve moral values and so on and so forth. So it does follow legal procedures, but it was very clearly politically motivated. And hence it's called a coup. So to be honest, Ted, that doesn't sound to me like a coup. I mean, there are clearly things going on there that would make people who want to see democratic processes followed through in a conventional way uncomfortable. But as you say, that sounds to me more like politics, raw politics, nasty politics than a coup. There's also the question then of Lula, who after all is in jail. And that's more where the people talk about a judicial intervention in in Brazilian politics. I think when people use the idea of a coup, what they're talking about really is the selective deployment of the law, right? So the law is a product of politics, of course, and it is a good reflection of what the state does as a set of ideas and how it tries to order society. In Brazil, of course, there's a huge gap between law in the books and law in practice, right? So there's an arbitrariness to the way that law is actually enacted and deployed upon who it's deployed and all those kinds of things. So who has been the subject of law, who law is for, has always been a very big question of inequality in Brazil. So the impeachment of Dilma was very much a question of why her? Indeed, it was, you know, we have lists and lists of people who have <laughs> We taken, could do this to almost anyone in public yeah, life. who have taken bribes, you know, on the order of multiple millions of, of pounds even, and they have not been the subject of the same processes. So, so indeed, why her is a very big question. Nadia, are you happy with that language to describe what's gone on in Brazil in the last two to three years? I would agree with you that it's too narrow. No? There is much more politics going on on it. If you think about the scene, the very scene of the parliament voting for the impeachment, this is quite impressive. This was quite impressive because it was a large group of people. What they did, what they expressed, was the total inability to deal with parliament politics. There was a problem in the relationship between government and parliament how she lost totally control, how she lost all capacity to negotiate with Parliament. This is a question we have to have in mind, how politics was conducted by her. There was a problem. So we have to take different points of view on this. Of course, inequality in the access and the use of law is crucial in Brazilian society. And this can be an extreme example why she, precisely she, this is the problem. And with Lula, so there was a point where it looked like he would run, and he was prevented from running. Was that preventing of him from running uh, extra-democratic intervention in a democratic process, or was it just politics? Well, the bigger question is really, so how can law be deployed to these kinds of ends, right? Who can leverage it? Who decides? Exactly. And so who did decide in that case with Lula? Who stopped him from running? Well, it's very unclear entirely what the negotiations were that made that form of investigation possible. But also, it's important to note that the judge that did push that process forward has since been nominated as the Minister of Justice, which is a new position that is going to aggregate a series of different ministries into one so-called super ministry. So it's made that process quite transparent, actually that the judge responsible for putting the person who had actually the largest favorability to be elected president in opinion polls, it was the person who actually then became or is likely to become the new minister of justice. So, so just before we get on to the question of how Bolsonaro actually won, 
Are you saying that Lula would have beaten him? That's what all of the opinion, opinion polls suggested. Definitely Lula was the candidate with the most support in any poll. He was prevented from running by this low-level judge called uh, Sergio Moro. Who's now a high-level minister. Who's now a high-level minister. And Sergio Moro, in his own interviews, repeatedly said that he'd never take up a political position because that would put in question his previous actions as a judge. So from the horse's mouth, if you like. <laughs> there were several other instances of the judiciary acting in a very politicized manner recently. That's one of them. But also the Supreme Court in Brazil prohibited a newspaper from interviewing Lula in jail, saying that this could spread misinformation, effectively a censorship. The court decided what could be publicized or not. The investigations that Sergio Moro conducted in this big corruption scandal were also politicized in other ways, such as the systematic release of plea bargain agreements, systematic release to the press of other information with political timings for previous elections, for this election. And even at the Supreme Court level, other discussions, one, there were other corruption investigations going on. One judge, whose name now escapes me, decided not to carry out the law as it should be because that would have destabilizing political implications. So they effectively made an ad hoc decision based on a political consideration. So we have a whole series of actors here, generals, judges, who maybe contrived to get this man elected. We try and avoid this kind of language on this podcast, but that's the kind of agency side of it. And then there's structure. There's the background conditions. There's the economy. There's the fact that Brazil has just been through one of the worst recessions still going through. You can tell us one of the worst recessions in its history. So let's let's sketch out that side of it too and then try and work out which is really driving this. So what is the current state of the Brazilian economy and how tough has it been? Well, it is the largest or at least the second largest recorded crisis, economic crisis in Brazilian history. So you have a decrease in per capita GDP of about 10% between 2013 and now. There has been a slight recovery, but still timid. You have about 8% of the primary deficit in the government budget. You have foreign deficits since 2009. So there, there is an economic crisis at several different levels. And socially, this has had massive impact. The increase of poverty and extreme poverty by a couple of million people. Unemployment doubling. Now it reaches about 14 million people in Brazil informality, bogus self-employment. So all of these social and economic issues have been big factors playing up to the election and disillusionment of voters. Nadia, how, how much strain is Brazilian society under at the moment? So when I hear those figures, I tend to kind of compare them with European examples. You know, this, is, this isn't quite Greece, but it's not far off. And of course, it's mm -hmm. starting from a lower base. So Greece was a pretty affluent country before its economy fell apart. Is Brazilian society really straining now? We have one of the worst crises in Brazilian history, it's true. But I was wondering, if we remember a Fernando Collor de Mello election, there was a crisis, an important crisis previous to this election. The first Fernando Henrique Cardoso election, too, the first Lula's election, every turn, in a certain extent, was succeeded 
not a so impressive recession, but a recessive conjuncture. Is there any necessary connection in contemporary Brazil between worsening economic conditions and uh, insatisfaction and uh, political turns? I think we should think a little bit about this. I mean, huh? Certainly, that that's the pattern, not just in Brazil. You, uh-huh. you see, when you try and understand how democratic politics goes through structural shifts, you do often need background pressures and strains on a scale to to create it. I think there is an interesting issue uh, connecting economy and politics in this moment, is that you have this huge importance of agribusiness in Brazil. And the presence of leadership from agribusiness in parliament, in government, uh, in the direction of this turn. When you say agribusiness, what are we talking about here? And what scale are we Not talking only about? Only the traditional uh, landowners, uh, it's grain, it's grain production, it's meat production, strongly integrated in global productive chains. And, and huge corporate players in this. Yes, I would say. So this is interesting. It really is a, a bigger question about larger political economies, too. I mean, in, in the, the period that we went through prior to this recession, there were a lot of efforts from Lula's government and from other governments to try to allow Brazilian companies to have takeovers of even American companies in terms of meat production and other kinds of things. So that was a really important time. And the way that that shift then happened has left a lot of people hurting in a lot of ways. And blaming the previous regime? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting point. But yes, I mean, the, the rhetoric has become, this is the PT's fault. This is all the PT's fault that all of this happened, even though if we reflect on the things that actually happened under those governments, unprecedented. So, and to be clear, so the PT is Lula and Dilma's yes, party. Yes, it is. Yeah. So um, 2002 movement. up until the second part. So despite the fact that this is a leftist government, they're being blamed for what you might call this kind of corporate turn in Brazilian politics. Well, in fact, I mean, if we look at the politics, actually, of Lula and of Dilma, they, they may have started left, yeah. but they shifted decidedly towards the center. So there was nothing structural in terms of any of the changes that they made to the Brazilian economy or to the politics. I mean, their sort of flagship social policy was a conditional cash transfer, or a series of them, actually, right, which is very much about moving around or bypassing many of those larger structural challenges. And the bigger kinds of projects were infrastructure projects and these sorts of things. So there was very little effort, for one reason or another, to change structurally the way Brazilian politics works. And so the economic interventions were often also very much about incentivizing private forms of accumulation. That's also true in terms of the higher education sectors. The biggest boom in private universities and in American investment in Brazilian private universities since forever And the policies about that are very much about having students accumulate some debt in the process, giving loans. So it's it's an entire misnomer that actually Lula and Jilma were from the left. They moved decidedly towards centrist forms of politics in keeping with neoliberal ideas and capitalism. So how then are we going to explain Bolsonaro's victory? I mean, it's obviously a combination of all of these things. But what would you make primary in this? Is it people's sense that they really have reached the end of the road with a way of doing politics in Brazil, maybe even a set of institutions, and they are starting to have doubts about democracy, for want of a better word? Or is it more of a kind of maybe shorter-term cyclical reaction against a set of economic conditions and, um, as it were, frustrations that are five years old rather than have been maybe building up over a generation or more? 
I wouldn't say that there is this deep generation-long disillusionment with democracy, but there's a big disillusionment with the way that politics had been happening in Brazil, which relates to this economic crisis, its social dimension, and also to corruption scandals that really flourished during the PT's government. It wasn't by any means restricted only to the PT. It hit right, left, and center, which explains a lot the loss of votes of the traditional center-right parties in Brazil, such as PSDB, which is called the Social Democratic Party, but it's the traditional place for the center-right in Brazil. So all of these traditional parties lost votes massively, in part due to this people being fed up with corruption scandals, being fed up with the, the economy and looking for something different. I don't think it relates to this big discomfort with democracy, but things might change rapidly. Because the way that Bolsonaro interpolates his voters is in a bifurcated way, if you like. He will say some more bland things to the media, but then have really inflammatory discourses to his base. And this has been legitimating a lot of street-level violence against minorities, against leftists, and against anyone who's not conforming to this rhetoric of his. So this strategy of talking to different things and being really anti-institutional at some point and then denying that will offer both things, an accommodation at the top and street-level violence to which the state can turn a blind eye. He won a lot of votes. I don't know how many. It's 58 million, something like that? Give or take, yeah, 55% of valid votes. So who are his base and then who are the people that he added to his base? Who, who are the people who voted for him? When you look at this very high percentage of votes, but also this divide, because there was a divide in the second turn, it's clear. And he was up against is, a, a leftist candidate who got 45% of the vote. Yeah, yeah. There is a, a wide range of force, I would say. No? You have this extreme right in one side, ideologically committed with electing someone like him. But you have all this arrangement of economic forces that were related to conduct the recovering process. This is another branch. You have this cluster of moral adepts. Their adherents are coming from very different type of moral resistant groups. There was this conservative middle class. They were in the streets in the 60s too. They were with Bolsonaro. So this is a large range. And there is something very interesting. This morning I was reading a Brazilian newspaper from a northeastern state and PT won all over northeast Brazil. And uh, almost half of congressmen and women elected in this state, they were with Bolsonaro. And they say they are Bolso Rui. Rui is the guy running the state, the PT guy. So it's totally inconceivable under this division, huge division in broad scene, that you can, you can see be on in the micro scene people are doing the convergence. So it's complex, I would say. So I think one of the other things that's really important here is that, of course, in Brazil, voting is mandatory. Everybody has to vote by law. And so actually what comes out in a lot of the results was, of course, it was 55% for Bolsonaro and 45% for Haddad. But actually, there were a lot of null and, and absentee votes cast. Uh, it was more than a third, actually, of the entire um, of the entire electorate. Um, and so you had a huge polarization between those people who actually wanted 
Bolsonaro and those who absolutely did not want him at any cost. And then a huge slice of the population that was just kind of like, we just don't want either of those things at all. So they voted, but they, they didn't vote for either of those other things because they had to actually show up. You can't get a passport, for example. You can't access public services unless you formally vote using the electoral voting machines. So it's a different kind of consequence than, say, in the United States, where it's, you just don't go to the polls at all. Mm-hmm. This is you had to go to the polls, but you actively chose not to enter the numbers for either of those candidates. It's a very political decision not to vote as well, right? So that, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, and around Bolsonaro, of course, the, the sort of idea that captures the imagination is that there are two big populations that matter, right? One is the sort of wealthy white Brazilian who is constantly in favor of having a highly unequal society, of having cheap labor in the household, um, you know, of, of black labor. And, and then you have the Pentecostals, right, who are somehow seen as this retrograde population that is increasingly pervading a Catholic society in, in predatory kinds of ways. But there's all of the, the rest of this stuff moving throughout this, which is that Brazilian politics has never been equitable, right? And a lot of people have never had access to state services or played a role in political parties or anything like that. So there is a larger kind of sensibility, I think, that does exist, particularly in the places where I've done research, where people have kind of said, so like, you know, why don't we burn it down? It's never done anything for us in the first place. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm sure, not just me, people listening to this will be hearing lots of echoes of things going on in other places. We've been talking about impeachment. We've been talking about politicians who seem to be on both sides at the same time. We'll come on to that. And we've done pretty well so far not to make the Trump comparison. But one question which arises with a lot of these kinds of politicians is, what is the socioeconomic base of their support? So the extreme right bit of it, is that this kind of better off class? Or does it tap into the the dispossessed as well? Because you can't win that number of votes (laughs) without putting together a coalition which straddles the economic divide, but what's driving it? Is it, is it the poor? As you said, 55% of the vote, you do need to have a big coalition. And it probably varies a bit in terms of what matters for each segment of the population that voted for him. One thing to bear in mind is that although he did get a lot of votes amongst the poor, the rich were more likely to vote for him than the poor perhaps differently from what happened with Brexit and Trump and so on. Actually not. I mean, that's the interesting thing, which is Trump is not supported by the left behinds. His, the profile of his voters was wealthier than Hillary Clinton's. Okay. Well, the Brexit might be a bit different, but in any case, there is this greater support amongst the rich. What matters for these people, as Graham was saying, might be more related to an interest in maintaining inequality. Whereas for the poor people... It's probably a mixture of being constantly interpolated as anti-corruption. Corruption Corruption is the big problem in society. Bolsonaro 
plays as an anti-corruption candidate, although his record isn't exactly too good on that, and the people he's appointing aren't too good on that either. A big disillusionment with the economy, and not necessarily these oppressive values, but conservative ones. It's not that the dispossessed are in favor of oppressing the black population and so on, but they might be in favor of, let's say, traditional family values, in a sense. But it's a difficult thing to play out to these competing interests. So reviving the economy, reviving jobs, reducing inequality, catering to conservative values, and to the elites who are, in a sense, the, the main supporters of Bolsonaro. Because something else that really came out in the Brexit vote and the Trump votes, two divides, actually there are a lot, there's generational divides too, but there's a kind of metropolitan, not metropolitan or urban rural divide. And then there's always the question about towns, which are neither one thing nor the other. And then an education divide. So the the more highly educated people were, the much less likely they have been to vote for Trump and Brexit. Is that something like that going on in this case too, or is it different? No, this is interesting in the Brazilian case because there is an education divide, but the more educated people tended to be more likely to vote to Bolsonaro. Okay, so that really uh, is different. Yeah. This is interesting. Uh, even if you take the city's issue, it's interesting too that Haddad could lose to a right-wing candidate in Sao Paulo previous election for mayor and then had a very good performance against Bolsonaro in the same city very few years later. It's interesting because those patterns can vary on time and from country to country. So why would education correlate with voting for Bolsonaro? Is it an economic issue? Well, education in Brazil, particularly higher education, has always been a kind of a proxy for wealth, right, and for influence, political kinds of influence and other forms of influence in the country. So it's not surprising, really, that, you know, the people who, in theory, are, are more educated or more enlightened would align with some of those ideas um, because there are larger interests at play than rather just their thoughtfulness about politics. I mean, that stands in very stark relief, actually, and, and is deployed in the way that people talk about this, which is that, of course, the PT governments tried to do something very particular in the university system, which was provide greater accessibility. Of course, they did that through privatization of higher education and other sorts of things. But they also did it around quotas and about getting underrepresented or historically underrepresented groups into universities. And that has been one of the big backlashes, actually, from the Bolsonaristas, which is, is basically, you know, we don't want those people who, do, who are in our universities to be in our universities because they shouldn't have been there and they don't deserve to be there. That was actually an effort, was to transgress that big divide in terms of higher education, which is a huge thing in Brazilian society. So who do we think we can or should compare Bolsonaro to? So the, the lazy shorthand in British and American newspapers is that he's the Brazilian Trump. People also compare, particularly at the level of rhetoric, you can find lots of politicians around the world. He's pretty far out there. He's pretty extreme, more extreme than Trump in what he says. But you know, we know that there are lots of politicians, whether it's Duterte or others, who, who use this language. It's violent, it's, it's profoundly prejudiced, and it identifies groups that are going to be the victims of this violence if this politician gets his or her way. It's, it's a him in almost every case. Is that the right comparison? Or is this, should we think about this as quintessentially a Latin American, South American kind of politics? And we should be comparing with other populist leaders on the continent? I think it's such a difficult comparison to make. I mean, there are so many larger similarities, right, about reclaiming what the nation state does and about identity and about the forms of 
power that exists within them. The Brazilian case is a very interesting one, too, because the tropes that it has taken on are so heavily about race and they're so heavily about violence and they're so heavily about who belongs in the public Also about sphere. gender and sexuality, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a highly masculine project, this one. I mean, which is, I mean, of course... That's why when I said him, him or her, I thought yes. this is ridiculous. I mean, you could say that basically about all of these larger nationalist projects. So I think there is something very heavily about reclaiming what the nation state does in terms of in terms of masculinity, in terms of race, in terms of, of who has benefited from power within these locations, which does then also beg the question, so like, why does it need to push back against that, right? Is there a threat to it that it could, that it could be transgressed? Is there something else going on in terms of political consciousness? That's an important question to me. So obviously, at, at, you can make these comparisons at different scales, right? But the tropes that it takes on in Brazil are, are particularly Brazilian in a lot of ways very particularly Brazilian. And Nadia, you, you can't win 55% of the vote just with men either. So how does he speak to his female supporters? It's interesting because uh, it changed along the time. There was much more refusal from female constituents than at the end of the process. So he got much more votes from women than I would expect. So, which is also a comparison uh, with yeah, Trump. People yeah. were astonished he couldn't win without women. It turned it turned out that he could win with, with uh, women. He was uh, he got much more vote than uh, we would expect with that kind of discourse. Now, so aggressive anti-women, and at the end of the the, the campaign, uh, he was exposed. No? The scenes came again and again and again in the television, the violent scenes against women. And his acceptance among women increased. This is interesting to, to think. What kind of contrary force, huh? what kind of counterbalance was working on? So he's not in office yet. 1st of January, I think, is when he starts. So he faces the challenge that all politicians of his stripe face, and this, this does include Trump, among others, that... They get there by running down the institutions, the conventional institutions of the state or of democratic politics, and they are they are outsiders, and yet they got these ambitious programs, and you can't deliver on these programs without those institutions, and something's got to give here, and there is a fear, which I think this does make it very different from the American case, that what might give is overt military intervention, that if you actually have a politician like this, once it becomes clear that he's going to start disappointing these supporters... And no doubt he is not going to make the state completely uncorrupt either. Then the question is, what comes next? Because it's unlikely that people will simply revert back to conventional politics. How worried should we be that this is a stage on the road to actually a much more familiar story about the end of democracy in, in Brazil? It's definitely a concern because not only has Bolsonaro spoken against institutions, talking about building them down, but his vice president who is a general, said that if things turn a bit difficult, we might have to stage a coup. He said that in the run-up to the elections. His two sons, who are now deputies, Bolsonaro's two sons who are now deputies, they have talked about closing down the Supreme Court. That would be easy. So they have overtly talked about demolishing institutions in Brazil. So that's one thing. The other thing is... As you said, it will be hard to balance all of these demands, won't get there, and there will be a backlash from institutions who, which are weakened by now. What are they going to do? 
It might revert to oppression. It might revert to trying to blame someone else. But there's also the chance that this will lead to regional conflicts. So there have been more or less overt declarations from Colombia and the U.S. about intervening militarily in Venezuela. Bolsonaro, his supporters and future ministers have signaled to the possibility of doing that. So using foreign wars as a way of taking away domestic pressures might be a solution as well. So it can be a military coup, it can be war, it can be repression. It's hard to say, but there is real reason for concern. And there has been, so here's another comparison with Trump. There was a Trump bump and there's been a Bolsonaro bump. The stock market has risen, I don't know, uh, short term. And there is a sort of bit of animal spirits excitement in the business community. But the economic challenges remain enormous. And presumably, he is really going to struggle to turn around the Brazilian economy. It's one thing to kind of froth up the stock market. It's another thing to tackle the structural challenges. There are two interesting points in that, which are, one, the stock market has really bumped, but there have been a series of interviews with manufacturing and service business people in Brazil, and they're not all that happy with Bolsonaro. They have a lot of concern that he's only going to play into the financial market and not into the productive sectors. And even agribusiness, soybean exporters, are concerned that his complete disregard for the environment will make it harder for him to for them to get export markets. So it's not entirely clear how he resolved that. And the other thing is, in Congress, he's got a lot of support for moral issues, conservative values. But for economic issues, it's a horse of a different color, really, because it involves big decisions that will go against a lot of his constituency. He's got a big liberalizing agenda, but it's rather unlikely that he'll be able to implement half of that. He himself for his career, along his career as uh, in the Congress, he was an statist, uh, anti-liberal. He was a very conservative in moral terms, but he was not at all this liberal figure he's trying to... He wasn't a kind of deregulator. Not he, at all. He was a, yeah, like you said, a statist. Not he was... Against deregulation. Uh, he was in favor of more state control. It's so close to what's going on in other places, and yet it's so different. In any way, he was a very unexpressive parliament, too. <laughs> so we have to take this. <laughs> yeah, the other thing people know about him is he got two, two things done in 26 years or something. Um, so one last question then, and it's not an easy question to answer, but Nadia, you, so you say there's a pattern in Brazilian history. There are both economic crises and democratic turns. There are also political crises and extra-parliamentary or extra-democratic interventions. Does this, do you feel like part of that pattern or does it feel like it's moving outside of that pattern into something dramatically new? I wouldn't say that we are going to to move outside democracy. At least I, I pray it's not the case. Uh, if we take, for example, Lula's problem at the Mensalão, the first problem of public denounce on corruption, and uh, there was a move toward impeaching Lula at this point of the time. And he wasn't impeached. Uh, this move was aborted. It was interesting because it was a political coalition. The center, the so-called social democratic PSDB party, was crucial in sustaining Lula at this point of the time. And they did not the same with Dilma. Huh? So it's interesting to say how coalitions and institutions 
they can be part of different political arrangements, sometimes under the same conditions. No? There was crisis, there was corruption, there was tension, there was this unsatisfaction with corruption in government, but the, the result was totally different. No? So I think oh, we are quite clear close to a dictator government. If you observe the last two days judiciary positions, it's quite interesting because we spoke previously on the presence and the importance of the judiciary on this coup. Huh? But two days ago, there was a woman, Raquel Dodge, attorney, general attorney in Brazil, which was nominated from Tema, who face to face with Bolsonaro in front of him in a celebration of 30 years of the, the new constitution, she told him on the importance of democracy, on respecting minorities, uh, women, uh, sexual orientation, and she was quite aggressive. He even never looked at her. And everyone applauded, and he didn't. So she was a woman from Temer. She was part of the coalition who completed the coup against Lula. But at the same time, at this moment, she's confronting Bolsonaro. So this is interesting to see how institutions, they can, they can move and they can adapt. I think what's, what's interesting about Bolsonaro too is that he, I mean, he is so absent of substance, right? You know, it's the guns out, it's the, I'm gonna be law and order, I'm gonna be, but you ask him a question of any depth about what he's going to do, what his reforms are, he has no idea. So I think actually what we're going to see is a battle behind the scenes for who's going to have the territory to be able to deploy the ideas that might matter, right? So he's given that space to a couple of people. So Gedges, who's the Chicago boy, who's going to be doing the, the you know a lot of the the economic stuff, and then Moro, who's in justice, and these kind of. But behind the scenes is really where I think the battles are going to take place. I mean, Bolsonaro is seen as this white knight, emphasis on the white. Also, but but there's nothing really behind it. So I think there is so much that has to that is going to be about who are the players and who are the other figures that are going to emerge as prominent in that discussion. I mean, like Brazilian politics, it's always it's always been about what happens behind closed doors. I don't think this is really that different um, because he can't he can't bring the rhetoric down to bear the way he would think he could. Right? We will tweet links at TP Podcast underscore to some interesting articles that can give you more background to this incredible story. Another incredible unfolding story is happening in Italy, and we will be talking about that on Thursday. And we will have bags available again soon. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.